Well, good afternoon, church. Great to be with you on this absolutely beautiful long weekend in May. I can't recall a time where it's been this beautiful uh, on this particular long weekend. So I hope all of you have had a chance to enjoy the weather and uh, just enjoy this beautiful creation uh, that God has given us. And it is kind of with a sense of, of excitement that we're getting into the text today. Uh, as we wind down in Mark. Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys. We have a very exciting uh, series coming up shortly after our, uh, our time in Mark. So we're going to take a three-week break after we finish in Mark to uh, speak to some kind of vision culture stuff that's going on in our church. And then we're going to be starting a new teaching series that's going to be somewhat protracted. And... Um, Whoever is able to maybe guess what we're going to do, drop a comment in that, what book we're going to be headed into next after we complete with Mark. Really, really, really looking forward to been doing some prep for quite a few months now and believe that there's an exciting day ahead for our church uh, as we really seek to lay some, some really strong doctrinal foundations uh, for our church and uh, so that we can be clearer and more precise with what we mean when we talk about being fully alive in Christ, what the gospel is, and uh, strengthen that gospel fluency, sort of baseline foundational discipleship layer that we always talk about. That said, we are actually back into the Easter passage, obviously, today. Uh, thank you, Shane, for reading that. And this is a really fascinating passage, and I really want to encourage you guys to, to lean in with me on this passage. It's so easy to tune out on Easter passages like this, to go, yeah, yeah, I know it, I've heard it all. And my prayer really is, and I'm going to pray this together uh, over us in a minute, is that we would hear this afresh and anew today, uh, that it wouldn't just be old uh, you know, maybe we're just tired of hearing the Easter story. I pray that we never get tired of the Easter story. But more importantly, I pray that, that the Holy Spirit actually speaks to us today. I think that there's some important uh, themes to cover. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for dying on that cross for us. And Lord, as we seek to unpack the significance of that again, Lord, I pray that you would you would capture our attention today. Father, that this wouldn't just be another 45 minutes of another sermon, but Lord, that the significance of the Son of God on the cross, Lord, would capture, would capture, would captivate us. Lord, that it would enthrall us, that it would, it would engage us. You would show us, Jesus, why it matters so significantly. Amen. This passage, Jesus has this famous line, perhaps one of Jesus' most famous lines. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's so significant that, that Mark actually records Jesus' Aramaic words as he would have spoken them in the language he would have spoken them in to drive home emphatically that Jesus was experiencing experiencing extreme and excruciating pain. These words, they were genuine, profound, and authentic cry of despair as Jesus nears the end of his ordeal on the cross. And I think that they may be some of the most important and resonant words in human history. I mean, those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They describe the human experience. 
Like this may be one of Jesus' most human moments. I can think of some others like when uh, Lazarus has died and Jesus weeps over the loss of his friend or his desire to honor his mother at the wedding. These human moments, but this might be Jesus' most human moment. A moment that I would wager all of us can empathize with. We've all been there. We've all wondered, maybe internally, for some of us out loud, for some of us silently in our journals and other, uh, others of us in our darkest, loneliest moments, we have asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words, of course, aren't limited to Christians. They're, they're words that describe virtually every human being. Story. Asking, where are you, God? Now, on the surface, these words, they seem like an indictment of Jesus, or sorry, of God's character. Like, where was the Father? Why was Jesus experiencing such a sense of abandonment in this moment. It caused us to ask questions like, was Jesus losing faith? The same kind of questions that we can ask of ourselves. God, where are you? Are you really good? Are you really there? Do you really care? But I want to I show us something really important in this passage. These words are not the end of the story. They're the beginning of the story. You see, despite Jesus' despair, his agony, he was not, and I am so grateful for this, he was not overcome in that moment. See, Jesus could have called himself down off of the cross. He was God. He had the power and the authority to save himself, but yet he didn't. His faith and his trust in his Father remained resolute and unwavering to the end. This is so important. Jesus, despite experiencing excruciating agony, is faithful to the end. This led me to ask the question, how, does, how do we persevere in the Christian life? Like when we are despairing, when we're in agony, when we're convinced we can't go one step further, how do we persevere? Moreover, how do we persevere joyfully, thankfully, with gratitude and kindness? Well, I believe this story of Jesus on the cross, not just the story, this scene, this narrative is going to tell us how and more than just tell us how, Mark is going to beautifully and brilliantly tell us in narrative form the whole story of the gospel. And how the gospel answers the question to a life of perseverance. You see these words, my God, my God, where have you forsaken me? I said that they were just the beginning. Well, this leads me to the first point I'd like to remind us on. 
the first thing that we see in this text to how do we persevere? How do we, how do we remain faithful? What does it mean to remain faithful? Number one, we bow before God. We bow before God. What do I mean? We see these words. Jesus starts by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But they are almost certainly a quote of Psalm 22, one of the great and most significant messianic psalms. And it's virtually certain that Jesus had them in mind. Now the psalm, the psalm starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It starts off with despair and agony. But that is not where it ends. Listen, listen to the end of Psalm 22. To the vision of hope that is painted. It says this, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Can we put these words into Jesus' mind as he hangs on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he remembers, verse 29, all the rich of the earth will feast and they will worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep himself, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he, God, has done it. Do you see that the basis of Jesus' prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was not a prayer of bitterness or anger or resentment, but it was a prayer of profound trust that his Father would do it. Jesus' ability to persevere through the agony on the cross was anchored in his even greater trust in the love of his Father, even when he felt abandoned. When we despair, when things are hard, our first temptation is to place ourselves in the judgment seat of the universe, to assume that our perspective is infallible. And we point the finger, like, like Job did, we point our finger at God and say, God, why are you doing this? Why have you abandoned me? But do you see that Jesus is not pointing the finger at God in judgment. Jesus is preaching to himself, reminding himself that there is a higher, more beautiful, unassailable truth anchored in his Father's goodness. He's reminding himself that there's a higher, deeper, more beautiful, redeeming purpose in the pain of the cross. When you find yourself despairing, do you point your finger at God accusingly? Or do you preach to your soul, 
that your Father is good, that He is kind, that you can trust Him. Years ago, uh, actually just after Kai was born, I was navigating uh, what at that time was a very difficult uh, season, and I was despairing. And many of you will know and will share this experience that, that, that at nighttime, everything feels worse, doesn't it? That the temptation to want to quit or give up is always the, the worst at night. Well, when you have a newborn, you're awake at night a lot. And I would remember Kai would wake up in the night and she would cry, as all babies do. And I would go to her room to, to comfort her. And in those days, I was often racked with a kind of anxiety, I would say. I was fearful of the future. I didn't know what to do. And in truth, I felt in many ways that... I felt abandoned. And I remember I would hold Kai as she cried in the night. And I would just pray. I would say, God, help me. God, help me. God, help me. And I would pray over Kai the, that song, I love you, Lord. I lift my voice. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. I didn't know what else to do, but I would just preach to my soul that my, my father was good as I tried to love my daughter. And he sustained me. Quick answers didn't come. It didn't necessarily get easy, but the, my father sustained me as I learned to trust him. He carried me through that season as he has done countless times since and countless times before. You see, so much of the Christian life is learning to acknowledge our limited perspective. And we must trust and learn to trust our maker. You know, it sounds trite, even cliche to say, trust the Father. But it is a foundational discipleship principle you see, we are ruled by our experiences. We are ruled by what happens to us. It comes at us, like life comes at us like crashing waves and it can become so uh, easy to define ourselves and our world by what is happening to us. By our missed expectations, by our past successes and failures, by our hurts and wounds, by our longings and desires, And yet the Christian life instead must be the process of training our souls to trust our maker. What I'm talking about here is the discipleship principle of, of perseverance. And Christian perseverance is not merely a matter of gritting our teeth. Jesus didn't just grit his teeth and say, I can do it. No, Christian perseverance is to simultaneously give permission to acknowledge the struggle, to despair even, while anchoring, rooting, and claiming a greater faith in the sovereignty of God. Choosing, sometimes even in face of the facts, 
or our experience to believe that our Father is good and that He will finish it. This is not just uh, like a mere delusion or self-delusion or power of positive thinking. But what we are doing is the same thing Jesus did. We are claiming the, the firmer foundation of God's sovereignty as the basis to interpret our experience as opposed to allowing our fallible perspective on our experience to define our reality. Let me say that again. We are choosing the firmer, stable ground of God's sovereignty to define our reality instead of allowing our fallible, imperfect human experiences to define our reality. Our faithfulness comes from a trust in God's character. The second thing that is necessary if we want to persevere Number two is we must confront the reality of sin. You might seem like, well, that's a funny thing to suggest for perseverance. Like, wait, wait, you're trying to tell me how we're supposed to be joyful, and yet part of the process here is we must confront the reality of sin. Yes. Yes, we must confront the reality of sin. I must ask the question here, why was Jesus on the cross in the first place? Why was he there? My favorite verse in, or one of, certainly my top 10, I often say I have a favorite and I always choose a different favorite. <laughs> one of my top 10, we'll say, is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It talks about how we are ambassadors of God, pleading with the world to be reconciled to him. That's verse 20, but verse 21 says, he, God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. In short, on the cross, Jesus was our substitute. He received what we deserved on that cross. In death, the consequence that we deserved became his to bear. What does it mean that Jesus received the consequence? And why did we deserve it? You see, the Christian message is not that there is no justice or that justice is not important. I talked about this two weeks ago. It's not that there is no law. It's not that there is no morality. The Christian message is that in Christ, the just and due consequence for all of humanity was poured out on him. He received the punishment we deserve. Now you see, Jesus experienced the consequence of sin. What was that? Broken relationship with his father. See, this is the nature of sin. Sin is not really like a moral category. We tend to think of sin as like a, a moral category. I broke a rule. And it breaks my heart because Christians have this habit of thinking about right and wrong and sin or not sin from a rule-breaking standpoint. But it's a really terrible paradigm to think about sin because it's too narrow. 
and it doesn't help us see God's heart. The effect of sin is to break relationship, to sever relationship. This is why in Genesis that we've just finished studying in our daily devos as a church, the very first consequences of sin was severed relationship between God and the man and woman, between the man and woman themselves, between their offspring, and between them and creation. Relationship breakdown is the consequence of sin. And at the core of our sin is a self-sufficiency that says, I do not need God. I don't need relationship with God. I don't need a God. I don't want there to be a God. Why? Because I want to be God. We look at the sustainer, creator, and author, and maker of life, and we say, I don't need you. Now, the, the supremely arrogant move is to place ourselves outside of relationship with God, to break relationship with God. But when you break relationship with the author of life, the sustainer of life, what is the consequence? Death. This is the nature of hell itself, separation from God and death. This was what Jesus experienced. Now, this is important for a very simple reason. We cannot experience the joy of Jesus until we have really faced and understood what He purchased for us. Does our theology, does your theology take sin seriously? Does our sheer and utter lack of goodness in the face of a perfect and holy God, is that a central component of your theology, how you think of and conceive of God? We cannot, as a people, walk in the fullness of what Christ has purchased for us. We cannot persevere in the things of what Christ has purchased for us unless we understand the things that Christ has purchased for us. Namely, He suffered the consequence of sin and death so that we don't have to. And that consequence is a real consequence for real sinfulness and real brokenness in all people. As the book of Romans emphatically makes the point over and over and over again, all have sinned. Now, you might be thinking, this doesn't seem like a relevant point to persevering in life as a Christian. It is absolutely vital. And here's why. In the absence of understanding this principle, we will seek to build our perseverance on weaker foundations.
In the absence of truly weighing the cost and understanding the cost of sin, we will eagerly pursue solutions to our own fulfillment or answers to our dissatisfaction in life outside the death of Jesus on the cross. A failure to see what Christ has really purchased for us will result in us trying to substitute in alternative answers and alternative saviors. If you study the, the, the philosophical foundations of most of our uh, sort of post-Christian culture or our non-Christian culture, so that is our culture is not really Christian in any meaningful sense, certainly not anymore. And if you look at the philosophical foundations of, uh, of our culture, particularly uh, philosophers like Rousseau, for example, what you'll discover is that the underlying assumption is that individual human sinfulness is not really a major factor, that people are basically good. And since people are basically good, we can build through clever human ingenuity and experiences healthy societies. In short, if people are basically good, we don't really need Jesus to die. We don't really need a savior, we just need a better system to save us. Unless we see the true cost of our sin, we will eagerly seek out all manner of solutions to our joy. But we must see, church, that the real solution to our joy is only found in humble submission at the feet of Jesus. Having recognized that He is sovereign and He is good and we are not, and our sin put Him on the cross. To fully comprehend our sinfulness means to become aware of the fact that we are nothing and can only be made whole because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It says in that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is not just referring to moral standing, it's referring to right relationship. The gift that we have because Christ was our substitute is that you and I can have restored relationship, right relationship with God. But in order to receive that, we must acknowledge what Christ has purchased for us, generally speaking. Now here's what I observe happens, and this leads me to my third point. Third point is this, we must, I must confess my sin. If I am to persevere, I must bow before God, I must confront the weight of sin, or the consequences of sin that put Jesus on the cross, and then I must confess my sin. You see, what I've observed is this, that it's, it's easy to as Christians go, yes, 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 Robin, you just taught some basic theology of sin and the fact that Jesus is our substitute. This is important. I agree with you, Robin. This is great. Good preaching. Thank you. Amen, pastor, or whatever. 
but we can fail to see that I, Robin Mark Waller, I am a sinner. This is not a general abstract theology. It is a reality that I walk in in the absence of the grace of Jesus every day. That we individually are sinners. That you, yes, you, wherever you are, you are a sinner. The thing with sinfulness is that it's so easy to treat it like an idea over there that affects other people. This is a grave mistake. We must individually own our sin. This is not just a matter of theological precision, but also one of personal conviction. We must see that my voice is among the mockers. It's interesting, in verse 35, it says, Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet, Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with some sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so that he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to mock him, to take him down. They mock him. They mock Jesus. Church, you and I are the mockers. Reminds me of that hymn, I believe we sung it last week. Goes like this, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has bought me life. I know that it is finished. How deep the Father's love for us. Now you see, this is not a vision of self-loathing. The Christian vision is not one of self-loathing, self-hatred, but rather one of self-awareness that flows from a God-awareness. This is why point one is so important. We bow before God. We recognize who God is. And because of our God-awareness, we can recognize who we are. Our culture says, become self-aware. Be your true self. Discover your true self. Look inwardly at your heart. Follow your heart. As Christians, we say, bow before God and discover what He has to say about you. Our self-awareness as sinners loved by God must flow from a God-awareness. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a brilliant book, I believe in the 1950s, called Spiritual Depression. And he says this, he says, quote, You must be made miserable before you can know true Christian joy. Indeed, the real trouble with 
the quote, miserable Christian, those of us that are struggling to persevere, is that we've never been truly made miserable because of a conviction of sin. He has bypassed the essential preliminary to joy. He has been assuming that he has no right to assume. He goes on to say, ultimately, the only thing which is going to drive a man to Christ and make him rely on Christ alone is a true conviction of sin. We go astray when we are not truly convicted of our sin. He's making the point here that the promise of Christian joy is through the pathway of recognizing and confessing our sin, truly. And we have short-souled so many Christians with a cheap kind of grace, a cheap kind of gospel that says, just put your hope in Jesus and everything will be okay. Or a cheap gospel that promises good experiences or powerful moments, but misses the fundamental truth that we are sinners that put Jesus on the cross. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. The need for us to have clarity on what it means to receive grace from Jesus. And that we have so often in the Western church, church short-souled the gospel by not confronting the sinfulness of humanity. We so often are tempted to sell a truncated gospel of powerful experiences, or wishful thinking that misses the holiness of God. We're so easily deceived to believe that we are not that bad, that we're not really in need of salvation. We were interviewing missionaries a few weeks ago, a few months ago actually now, and one of the missionaries uh, on, on our team said something that really has stuck with me. He said you can a rough paraphrase, you can really evaluate how well someone understands the gospel by how well they understand sin. You see, our clarity of the gospel flows from a clarity of the intersection of God's loving kindness and our personal sin. When, those, when our clarity of thinking of those two things, God's loving kindness and our sin, where those intersect is the clarity of our gospel. And if we are to persevere through the trials of life, we have to see the firm foundation is not found in our experiences. It's found in the grace of Jesus to forgive us as sinners. Now look at what happens. Number three, we receive the gift of presence. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The ugliness of sin here is confronted on the cross. is paralleled 
with where the ugliness of sin had historically been confronted. So as the, the sin of humanity is confronted on the cross in the death of Jesus, Mark immediately parallels it with the temple. This is where sin had historically been dealt with, where people could offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Now in the temple, there were a set of various courts, and as you moved inward, it became more restrictive. So the outer court, lots of people were allowed in, and as you moved inward, fewer and fewer people were admitted until you get to the most holy place where only the high priest was permitted. And separating this most holy place from uh, the holy place and the rest of the temple was a really thick curtain. Like, I don't mean like a, you know, like a drape. I, I mean, like this thing was like mega thick. This was the curtain of all curtains. And in this most holy place behind the curtain was where God's presence dwelled. And in order to enter into this most holy place, in order to enter into God's presence, a sacrifice was necessary, a substitute. Normally a whole complicated set of sacrifices were necessary such that the high priest could enter the presence of God. Animals were substituted. Here, Mark is drawing an explicit parallel as Jesus is substituted for us so that we can enter the most holy place. As the temple is torn open because of Jesus' death, God is saying emphatically, come into my presence. Jesus' death purchased an admittance into the presence of God for all people. It's interesting, this past week, we celebrated Pentecost Sunday, the coming of the Holy uh, Spirit on believers in the early church, the filling of Christians with power. Now, the prerequisite for the filling of Christians with the presence of God and the Holy Spirit was the opening of the temple, the tearing of the veil. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus and by a new living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see this? What Mark is trying to do is he is trying to demonstrate the weight of sin intersecting with the sovereignty of God. He's demonstrating that you and I are among the scoffers. You and I are part of this. But then he's saying, the grace of God paves a way through our brokenness. We can have confidence, security, and authority because of what Christ has purchased for us. Many Christians and many of us who are struggling to persevere, we, we operate out of a performance mentality. Well, if, maybe if I persevere in life because I'm performing, because I can earn God's favor, I feel guilty. So I'm going to leave my simple church because I feel guilty. I'm going to make disciples because I feel guilty. Church, guilt is not 
the right motivator. Here's the truth. We are guilty. We have guilt that we cannot pay on our own. This is the whole point. You are guilty. And no amount of good works is going to eliminate that guilt. But so often we operate in our following of Jesus, in our attempting to persevere as Christians, trying to pay off our guilt. And sometimes you get theologically muddled here where you say, well, maybe I'm not that bad. Maybe I'm not that guilty. Don't feel guilty. No, the answer is not don't feel guilty. The answer is receive the grace of Jesus. We are guilty, but he has forgiven us. We don't need to earn our favor with God because it has been purchased for us by Jesus. So we persevere, not because we're persevering out of a guilt-laden kind of motivation. We persevere because we have received the gift of forgiveness and an invitation to relationship with our Father. This is the beauty of Christianity and why it provides a way to walk through the challenges of life because it confronts the brokenness of humanity. But then, instead of saying you have to work your way out of it, to earn your way out of it, says Jesus has already paved that way. And Mark demonstrates this deftly in the very next set of verses, verse 39. He says, When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he, Jesus, has died, had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. This was almost certainly not the first crucifixion for this particular Roman soldier, yet he was transfixed by it. Why? Jesus demonstrated the power of humble, persevering obedience to God. The way of Jesus was not to arrest power, was not to uh, seize it for himself, to control his destiny, to avoid pain at all costs. No, the way of Jesus was to seek out the purposes of God in humble obedience. The story of Christianity is the story of a God who enters humanity and lays his life down. In other words, the road to true joy is not found in clinging to our lives. It's found in laying them down. And this Roman officer realizes that and in that moment confesses the Lordship of Christ. Mark is making an emphatic statement here about the power of Christ. Here we have an enemy, a sworn enemy of Jesus. In fact, Jesus' very executioner, who is redeemed by the love of the one he has killed. Jesus' grace is that kind. This simple statement 
This man truly is the Son of God, is the absolute center of the gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. When the Roman affirms this, he is not just saying who Jesus is, he is also saying who he is not. If Jesus is the Son of God, then I am not God. And therefore, the pathway to life is found in submission to Him. If we are to be fully alive, we must confess our sins before Almighty God and receive the gift of new life that He has for us. And in so doing, we are completely, totally, and beautifully redeemed. This is, church, the gospel. The intersection of God's sovereignty, His loving kindness with our sinfulness is depicted with Jesus on the cross. I want to close with one final thought. It is fascinating to me that the first person to confess Jesus was the enemy of Jesus, his executioner. A Roman, no less. The enemy. This is the heart of God. To redeem the enemy. This is the heart of our church. To go to those who are far from God and plead with them, be reconciled to God. Not because they are close to us, not because we are particularly, uh, have lots in common, but because God loves them. That's why we go to campuses. Because on our campuses, church, there are millions of students in Canada alone that have been taken in by a worldview that is not good. It is not stable, and it does not produce life and joy. And here in the pages of the Gospel of Mark, we see a better way. And for this reason, church, we must persevere. We must persevere as Jesus persevered in the cross. We must persevere in the mission that He has laid before us as a church. We must persevere to love our simple churches, to lay down our lives for them, to lay down our lives for our campuses, to love and bless and serve our church, that it would be a testimony in the way we love one another of how much God loves the world. These have been difficult days to be sure. It has required perseverance in all of our simple churches very keenly aware of how difficult it has been to persevere for many of you. For example, I was chatting with uh, Ina, shared with the missionaries and with some of the team this week the challenges that she's been going through in that we don't have enough male disciples at York University and so she's carrying a lot of the load on her own. And it's difficult to multiply that she's fearful that she'll have to spend another year waiting for another male disciple to help show up and show up the, 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 the strength of things there. It's been challenging 
and trying to launch at the University of Waterloo with Cassie and Stephen when they freshly married just move out there and they're in lockdown and they can barely move. It's been challenging to identify leaders for some of our regions. And yet, church, you have persevered so faithfully. But I pray that you persevere and that we persevere and that where we see need, we step up to the plate. That we would see need like Ina has posted need. That we would pray for Stephen and Cassie in Waterloo. That we would identify where our Simple Church regional directors or our Simple Church leaders need support and we would jump in to supply that support. But I pray we would do these things not because we are trying to earn or out of guilt. We would do these things because we have seen how much God loves his church and how much God loves when his church loves the world. That we would persevere. Because we have recognized and encountered ultimately the gospel of Jesus. That the foundation of our perseverance would be rooted in the sovereignty of God and the grace of his forgiveness for our sin. Let that be the foundation that we persevere from. Love you, church. Thank you so much for being with us on this Sunday. I've got a question for you to ponder in your simple churches and your simple church regions regarding how this will affect the way you love one another in your simple churches and how your simple churches will love the lost. I pray that as you go into communion, that you can reflect on what Jesus has done for us today. Be blessed. You'll all find communion together in your simple church regions. Love you all.